Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. June 16th, 1917. Beneath a hot afternoon sun in Pennsylvania, Socialist Party Chairman Charles Schenck stood patiently and professionally outside a military recruitment office. Holding an armful of folded paper leaflets, Schenck sweatily but affably distributed his latest printings to anyone walking by. It was the third year of hostilities during the First World War. It was also the first year the United States had joined the Entente powers of Western Europe. And only 11 days prior to this infamous event, America had begun military conscription for men between the ages of 21 and 30 under the quote-unquote Selective Service Act. Every so often, Schenck would warmly offer a passerby a copy of his pamphlet denouncing the war. But his primary intention was to dissuade any young men arriving at the recruitment center from willingly joining this war effort. He additionally wanted to call attention to the travesty of conscription regarding individual rights, to alert people about the evils of the Espionage Act, and to point out how working men would be made to die for capitalist war interests. Shank's socialist-themed leaflet was entitled, Long Live the Constitution of the United States. Wake up, America. And it stated that, quote, Assert your rights. Do not submit to intimidation. Arrest, jail, and even death are preferable to living in slavery. This is a call to the National Committee for Defense of Political Prisoners. Amnesty for all political prisoners. Repeal the Espionage Act. Repeal the Trading with the Enemy Act. Down with the war. Up with the fight for socialism. Workers of the world, unite. End quote. And after only a brief period of standing outside that military office, only to peacefully distribute his literature, an act allegedly protected by the First Amendment, Schenck was accosted by plainclothes Bureau of Investigation agents. He was summarily pulled off the street and incarcerated for violating the aforementioned Espionage Act. A recurring perversion of free speech amidst the war raging in Europe that led to the crackdown of dissent at home. And now, Schenck's path was headed directly towards a Supreme Court case, one that was to reverberate through history for decades to come. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Smoke-Filled Rooms a dark cast network show dedicated to exposing the nexus of political malfeasance and true crime storytelling. I am your host, Gregory Zink, and today's episode will be in addition to my ongoing, and not necessarily chronological, sub-series within the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast called The First Amendment Files. 
This will be chapter two of my investigations into the American people's fundamental rights to freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to peacefully assemble, and freedom to petition the government for a redress of grievances. As I mentioned in my first installment of this series, Printing Painful Truths, The Zanger Trial, I consider the enshrined American free speech rights to be the world's most important ideal. This is because it is a fundamental aspect of a liberty-centric society that encourages its citizens to express their opinions, voice their concerns, and hold the state accountable without fear of retribution or censorship. Dissent, as we'll come to learn in this episode, is the specific act of expressing disagreement or opposition to established policies, political authorities, or the social zeitgeist. And this is supposed to be the primary right in any democratic society by encouraging the free flow of ideas and opinions, the marketplace of ideas as it were, being disinfected by sunlight, no less. Yet still, instances continually crop up where the state seems to willfully disregard the spirit and idealism of the First Amendment in favor of self-serving Machiavellian tactics. Enter the phrase, don't yell fire in a crowded theater, which is often misunderstood in terms of its application and origin. This analogy is commonly used to illustrate the concept of free speech and its alleged limits, but unbeknownst to most, the phrase originated in the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case of Schenck v. United States in 1919. In this case, Charles Schenck, a political activist, was charged with violating the Espionage Act of 1917 by distributing leaflets urging young men to resist the draft during World War I. Schenck's defense case revolved around the idea that his actions were protected by the First Amendment's right to free speech, but we'll get into that in good time. Firstly, we have to get to know the man whom we can rightly say stood up for his convictions, talked the talk slash walked the walk, and was undeterred by state provocations to strip him of his supposed unalienable constitutional rights. This man was Socialist Party National Secretary Charles Schenck. And Charles, well, he fought the law, and the law won. Charles Schenck was born on November 11, 1886, in St. Paul, Minnesota, to German immigrant parents. And in hindsight, we can see how growing up in a working-class family, well attending public schools, had a formative influence on his young mind. Throughout his childhood, Schenck and his family were subjected to a number of personal and financial struggles. His father died while he was young leaving his mother and extended family in a position of financial precariousness. Schenck himself also faced personal health issues without major recourse. This included a struggle against tuberculosis that forced him to spend some time in a sanatorium. You might even say that Charles's struggles were akin to breaking rocks in the hot sun, because Charles, well, Charles fought the law and 
Yeah, I'm going with the Clash version on this one. And yes, 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 I'm well aware of the Sonny Curtis original and its popularization by its eventual cover by the Bobby Fuller 4. But I still have a punk rock spirit through and through, and although I would prefer to play the Dead Kennedys version, they actually beat the law in theirs. Our title figure in this episode, well, he didn't. But Shank did recover through his health hardships, graduated high school, and went on to work various odd jobs, including bookkeeper and a clerk for a local printing company. But these low-level positions apparently gave him some insights into the worker versus owner dynamic of the capitalist system. And after this brief period between high school and adulthood, Schenck, increasingly expanding his political philosophy readings, joined the Socialist Party of America. He moved to Philadelphia in 1911 and quickly became a prominent member of the local socialist community. After a solid year of enthusiastic activism, he was appointed to the National Secretariat of the American Socialist Party, a position he held until 1918. Schenck was renowned for his exceptional work ethic and single-minded dedication to his political principles. He was additionally noted as a charismatic speaker who tirelessly pushed for workers' rights at various labor disputes in the Philadelphia area. So his devotional zeal regarding free speech and labor justice, some may even say religious attachment to his ideals, made him a respected leader in the socialist movement and a trusted ally by the Philadelphian working class. And throughout the 19-teens, the Socialist Party, and so Schenck, were leading opponents of World War I and the United States' involvement in it. And that meant, in all shapes and forms, whether as suppliers, profiteers, or flirtatious allies. Schenck vehemently believed that the war was being fought for the benefit of big business and the state, and that it would ultimately do nothing but cripple the working class. The Socialist Party's arguments against the war were fivefold. Number one, they argued it was imperialist, both in the sense that this was an elite European power struggle and that America was being tempted into its own imperial realizations. Two, they rejected all forms of violence. In this, they thought pacifism was the only moral response to unchecked aggression and coercion. They strongly advocated instead for diplomacy and multifaceted means of achieving peace through negotiation. 3. They promoted class solidarity, meaning that they believed pursuits of power, conquest and war to be elite machinations. They argued that the working classes of the world had more in common than they realized and that they should recognize the artificial and subjective nature of the state system. 4. They insisted it was a complete waste of economic resources. Instead of spending untold billions at the time on bullets, guns, and vehicles to slaughter working-class people in a trench on the Maginot Line, they argued that all the money could be used for healthcare, education, and welfare programs at home to promote life and not death. And 5. As Schenck was about to find out, the socialists argued that World War I needlessly infringed upon constitutional liberties. Because of the need to propagandize and control wartime messaging, 
governments suppressed free speech and free assembly in order to realize the state's objectives. And this last point leads more specifically to our interest in this case, a case that would eventually be known as Schenck v. United States in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. As described at the very beginning of this episode, Schenck was specifically charged with distributing leaflets that urged men to resist the draft. And again, the leaflets argued that the draft was unconstitutional and violated the 13th Amendment's prohibition against involuntary servitude. Just as a reminder, the United States government was coercing young men into being killed or maimed in Europe or be fined $10,000, which is the equivalent of a quarter million dollars today, or up to five years in federal prison. And this is not to mention the alleged shame, embarrassment, and very real social ostracism one could expect if vocally opposing the national conscription effort. The propagandized masses would label you as a draft dodger or a cowardly anti-patriot. The specific slurs used against conscientious objectors or noisy opponents at the time were slacker, shirker, yellow-bellied, or hun-lover. And this term was used to describe those who were accused of sympathizing with the enemy, even though they may have been religious opponents of violence who just happened to be of Germanic origin. The Mennonites and Quakers come to mind. But as I described at the top of the episode, Schenck was convicted and sentenced to six months in prison for distributing anti-war pamphlets directly in front of a military recruitment base. And it's important to note that Schenck's arrest was part of a larger effort by the U.S. government to crack down on dissent aimed at the war effort. He was one of literally thousands of arrests aimed at anti-state and anti-war activists, and this is not to mention the many several thousands who were harassed threatened, and surveilled by government officials. This automatically brings to mind an influential American journalist and social critic of the era, Randolph Bourne. While writing about World War I, he coined the phrase, War is the health of the state. Check out the essay this is drawn from called The State, and I'll be listing it in the show notes. Bourne wrote that, quote, With the shock of war, however, the state comes into its own again. The government, with no mandate from the people, without consultation of the people, conducts all negotiations, the backing and filling, the menaces and explanations, which slowly bring it to its collision with some other government, and gently and irresistibly slides the country into war. For the benefit of proud and haughty citizens, it is fortified with a list of intolerable insults which have been hurled towards us by other nations. For the benefit of the liberal and the beneficent, it has a convincing set of moral purposes which our going to war will achieve. For the ambitious and aggressive classes, it can gently whisper of a bigger role in the destiny of the world. The result is that, even in those countries where the business of declaring war is theoretically in the hands of representatives of the people, no legislator has ever been known to decline the request of an executive, 
which has conducted all foreign affairs in utter privacy and irresponsibility. Good Democrats are wont to feel the crucial difference between a state in which the popular parliament or congress declares war and the state in which an absolute monarch or ruling class declares the war. But, put to the stern pragmatic test, the difference is not striking. In the freest of republics as well as in the most tyrannical of empires, all foreign policy, the diplomatic negotiations which produce or forestall war, are equally the private property of the executive branch of government, and are equally exposed to no check whatsoever from popular bodies, or by the people voting as a mass themselves. But the moment that war is declared, the mass of people, through some spiritual alchemy, become convinced that they have willed and executed the deed themselves. They then, with the exception of a few malcontents, proceed to allow themselves to be regimented, coerced, deranged in all environments of their lives and turned into a solid manufactory of destruction towards whatever other people may have, in the appointed scheme of things, come within the range of their government's disapprobation. The citizen throws off his contempt and indifference towards the government, identifies himself with its purposes, revives all his military memories and symbols, and the state once more walks, in august presence, through the imaginations of all men. Patriotism becomes the dominant feeling, and produces immediately that intense and hopeless confusion between the relations which the individual bears and should bear towards the society of which he is a part." End quote. Although we know now what Schenck knew all those years ago, that this wasn't really about national defense, we now know it's about obedience to elite plans. The Espionage Act was designed to strengthen the state's ability to prevent interference with U.S. military operations and recruitment during the war. It included key provisions that made it illegal to mine information relating to national defense with the intent of delivering it to a foreign government, take any action that interferes with U.S. military operations or recruitment, publishing or distributing any information that could interfere with U.S. military operations or recruitment, and conspiring to commit any of the aforementioned offenses. Needless to say, it was an authoritarian and coercive document from the start and raised important philosophical questions regarding the balance between national security and individual liberties. For example, should the government be able to deprive you of your rights in order to secure its goals? How much liberty are you willing to trade for security? And how can you be so sure that once you abandon your liberties, that they will be returned intact? And though many Americans of the day were quote-unquote isolationists, I prefer the word anti-interventionist, the United States, under the cold elitist depravity of President Woodrow Wilson, pushed the Espionage Act through Congress and signed it immediately into law, all the way raw-rawing them into war. But getting back to Schenck, he was arrested by federal authorities who were likely agents of the United States Department of Justice or the Bureau of Investigation, which would later become the FBI. At the time of Schenck's arrest in June 1917, the Department of Justice was responsible for enforcing federal laws, 
including the Espionage Act of 1917, which obviously Schenck was charged with violating. However, the specific details of Schenck's arrest and the identities of the federal authorities involved are not widely known or documented. Although I'm quite sure that the victims of these crimes against the American people do not forget their captors or oppressors. But after a speedy trial, remember the aim was to harshly suppress dissent so that it couldn't spread a potential social contagion through the ranks of young men. Schenck was convicted in federal court for violating the Espionage Act. He was sentenced to six months in prison but was released on bail pending a re-examination of his case in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Within this appeal, Schenck and his lawyer argued that the Espionage Act violated his rights under the First Amendment of the Constitution. This section is supposed to guarantee the freedom of speech for American citizens. However, the appeals court upheld his conviction in a decision issued in February of 1919. He was sentenced to another six months in prison. However, he was again released on bail pending an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which of course he did and was granted a hearing in January of 1919. And just as a frame of reference here, throughout this period that Schenck was legally battling the federal government, the war had officially ended. The famous armistice was signed on November 11, 1918, so the U.S. government was still actively prosecuting Espionage Act victims well after the hostilities had ended in Europe, thus highlighting the single-minded and unwavering cruelty of the state when its power is challenged. But all this brings us back to the primary aim of our investigation. In his case before the Supreme Court, Schenck again argued that the Espionage Act violated his First Amendment rights. Hey everyone, I'm just going to take a short break from this episode to remind you that, if you haven't already, to rate and review the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. Doing this free and simple gesture goes a long way to ensuring that I get my signal boosted in the algorithmic rankings on the various interweb platforms. This quick and easy gesture also has the supplemental effect of reinforcing my commitment to the show, because it reminds me that you actually enjoy it. So please help a brother out here. Pause this episode, go into your podcast app, and rate and review Smoke-Filled Rooms. Cheers, and thank you in advance. The Supreme Court would go on to ultimately uphold Schenck's conviction of the two previous trials in a unanimous decision issued on March 3, 1919. The justices ultimately ruled that Schenck's socialist leaflets were not protected by the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech under the Constitution. Furthermore, this ruling established the now infamous quote-unquote clear and present danger test for evaluating government restrictions on free speech. So let's take a closer look at what exactly the court meant by this phraseology. The articulation of the concept of a clear and present danger was used specifically in the context to refer to Schenck's anti-war free speech. Meaning that 
the court believed the state could indeed restrict constitutionally protected rights if it posed a quote-unquote clear and present danger to the country. The court's rationale for this ruling was their insistence that the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech was not an absolute right, and that the government had a legitimate interest in protecting and promoting national security during wartime. The court ultimately found that Schenck's leaflets urging men to resist the draft presented a clear and present danger to the war effort, and therefore, the government was justified in restricting his speech. This novel concept necessarily entailed that the threat of lawlessness, corruption, or violence must be both clear, meaning it must be obvious and readily apparent, and present, meaning it must be happening now or is imminent. Presiding Justice Holmes spelled out the idea in his written opinion on the case, where he famously analogized that, quote, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man from falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic, end quote. And there you have it. That is the origin of yelling fire in a theater. It was not, as most people would assume, a well-conceptualized legal test meant to stop the untrammeled and ill-motivated speech of bad-faith actors bent on anarchy. No, no, no. It was the ad hoc rationalization of debasing civil liberties in favor of wartime passions. Specifically, and I would even say cynically, deployed to knock down a dissenting and peaceful voice against a national war machine. In subsequent cases decades after the fact, the court refined and expanded their clear and present danger test. For example, in the 1969 case of Brandenburg v. Ohio, most likely a future subject of the First Amendment files, that court noted that speech could only be restricted if it did or had a high probability of inciting imminent lawless action. Meaning further still that the examined speech in question was likely to result in violence or other illegal conduct in the immediate future. Meanwhile, and ever since, the phrase about fires and theaters became a widely used metaphor to describe free speech limitations, with most people using it in an idiomatic and wildly inappropriate context, mostly describing things they don't think should be allowed to be said. So let's hear some arguments against the idea of a clear and present danger and thus the Supreme Court's decision in the Schenck case. The main argument against a clear and present danger test is that it is entirely too vague and can be wildly subjective depending on the judge's perspective. For inherent within this litmus test is a judge's determination about whether particular speech poses a direct and ominous harm to others. This can be notoriously difficult to define and apply in a legally consistent fashion. I would argue that this test gives way too much discretion to legal elites and could easily result in inconsistent and arbitrary decisions. As in the Schenck case, where he was peacefully trying to prevent violence from being wrought on his fellow countrymen. He wasn't staging fiery rallies where he encouraged attacks on state institutions he was handing out pieces of paper on a public street. But I digress. 
Another argument against the fire in a theater test is that, as we've clearly seen thus far, it can be abused to justify state censorship and the suppression of unpopular or dissenting views. It was applied too broadly, and it was directly utilized to restrict speech that didn't actually pose a clear and present danger. The widespread understanding of this principle no doubt has chilling effects on free speech and limits the exchange of ideas. Rhetorically and allegedly, these are supposed to be fundamental principles of free liberal democratic societies. The marketplace of ideas again. And finally, I'd argue that the test places way too much emphasis on the potential harm caused by speech and not enough on the intrinsic and incalculable value of free expression itself. As political commentator Aron McIntyre constantly reminds us, the slippery slope remains undefeated, and justifying restrictions on speech that are critical of the state will inevitably lead to long-term creeping censorship and authoritarianism. So it's best to not even let the legal and political gatekeepers get their foot in the door under the guise of protecting a largely fictional and oppressive entity known as the people or the state. If these villains so much as even stick a censorous toe in your doorframe, slam it shut and watch their bloody toes wriggle in tyrannical agony. Yet, to the best of my knowledge, no lawyer or court has completely overturned the concept of a clear and present danger in any American legal proceedings. However, there have been cases in which the application of the test has been questioned or narrowed. One hilarious and ironic example is the 1972 case of Cohen versus California. Their state Supreme Court held that the use of a vulgar word on a jacket worn in a courthouse did not present a clear and present danger and was therefore protected speech under the First Amendment. And what was the vulgarity emblazoned on Paul Cohen's jacket? Well, it was fuck the draft in reference to the Vietnam War. But before moving on to some other topics of interest within this case, let's briefly look at the Supreme Court justices who heard it in court. At the time of Schenck's trial in 1919, the political leanings of the Supreme Court justices varied in their general stances and personalities. However, it is worth noting that the court was generally considered to be conservative and pro-business during this time period. We had Chief Justice Edward White, who was appointed by President Grover Cleveland and generally considered to be a conservative Democrat. We had Associate Justice Joseph McKenna, who was appointed by President McKinley and generally considered to be a conservative Republican. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who we'll be hearing a lot more from, was appointed by Theodore Roosevelt and generally considered to be a liberal Republican. Next we had William R. Day, who was appointed by President Theodore Roosevelt and generally considered to be a conservative Republican. Next. Willis Van Devanter, Associate Justice, appointed by Theodore Roosevelt and generally considered to be a conservative Republican. In the sixth thought, we have Associate Justice Malon Pitney, appointed by President Taft and considered to be a conservative Republican. And the final three justices were all appointed by President Woodrow Wilson, and thus they were generally considered to be progressive Democrats, 
These are Justices McReynolds, Brandeis, and Clark. And if you took a closer look at the Supreme Court's cases and track record, you might say that these guys were rhetorically and jurisprudentially robbing people with a six gun. But Schenck, well, he fought the law and... Okay, so it was a 5-4 to four Republican SCOTUS under a Democrat presidency with a Democrat Chief Justice. Also worth noting is that President Woodrow Wilson appointed three of the justices so he hoped that they would carry out his progressive agenda in the judicial branch of government. Of special import from the justices is Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. For this is the man whose written opinion on the unanimous decision against Schenck would become infamous for all the reverberations of fire yelling in crowded places the world over. Which I should note quickly is a potentially deadly reality of being in a crowded spot regardless of whether or not there is actually a fire. A couple quick examples can demonstrate this reality. The first occurred on December 30, 1903, when a fire broke out at the Iroquois Theater in Chicago. The theater was jam-packed with over 2,000 people, many of them women and children. When the fire started, panicked audience members rushed for the exits, only to find that many of them were locked or blocked. Over 600 people died as a result of both the fire and the mad trampling effect of the panic making it one of the deadliest theater fires in American history. On the flip side, January 1, 2015, during a New Year's Eve celebration in Shanghai, thousands of people had gathered on the city's waterfront to watch a fireworks display. Shortly after the festivities began, word began to spread around the crowd of a stampede and an irrational rush to leave. In short order, the crowd panicked and began pushing and shoving to escape the entirely normal and non-threatening situation. But hysteria set in and anxiety multiplied rapidly to the point where thousands fell and were trampled. This mass hysteria event eventually left 36 dead and many dozens injured. I just say this to point out that these things happen regardless of whether or not you control people's speech. Regardless of these obvious realities, here is Justices Holmes' complete and unedited opinion for the Supreme Court in the case of Schenck v. United States, delivered on March 3, 1919. Quote, This is an indictment on three counts. The first charges a conspiracy to violate the Espionage Act by causing and attempting to cause insubordination amidst the military and naval forces of the United States and to obstruct the recruiting and enlistment service of the United States when the United States was at war with the German Empire, to wit, that the defendants willfully conspired to have printed and circulated to men who had been called and accepted for military service under the Act of May 18, 1917, a document set forth and alleged to be calculated to cause such insubordination and obstruction. The count alleges over acts in pursuance of the conspiracy, ending in the distribution of the document set forth. The second count alleges a conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States, 
to wit, to use the mails for the transmission of matter declared to be non-mailable by Title 7 of Section 2 of the Act of June 15, 1917. The third count charges an unlawful use of the mails for the transmission of the same matter and otherwise as above. The defendants were found guilty on all the counts. They set up the First Amendment to the Constitution forbidding Congress to make any law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Charles Schenck, who was General Secretary of the Socialist Party and had charge of the Socialist headquarters from which the documents were sent, he identified a book found there as the minutes of the Executive Committee of the Party. The book showed a resolution of August 13, 1917, that 15,000 leaflets should be printed on the other side on use of one of them, and to be mailed to men who had passed exemption boards and for their distribution. Schenck personally attended to the printings. The document in question, upon its first printed side, recited the first section of the 13th Amendment, and it said that the idea embodied in it was violated by the Conscription Act and that a conscript is little better than a convict. In impassioned language, it intimidated that conscription was despotism in its worst form, and a monstrous wrong against humanity in the interest of Wall Street's chosen view. It said, quote, do not submit to intimidation, end quote, but in form at least, confined itself to a peaceful measures such as a petition for the repeal of this act. The other and later printed side of the sheet was headed, quote-unquote, assert your rights. It stated reasons for alleging that anyone violated the Constitution when he refused to recognize, quote, your right to assert your opposition to the draft, end quote, and went on to say that, quote, if you do not assert and support your rights, you are helping to deny or disparage rights, which it is the solemn duty of all citizens and residents of the United States to retain, end quote. It described the arguments on the other side as coming from cunning politicians and a mercenary capitalist press, and even silent consent to the conscription law as helping to support an infamous conspiracy. It denied the power to send our citizens away to foreign shores to shoot up the people of other lands, and added that words could not express the condemnation such cold-blooded ruthlessness deserves. Winding up saying that, quote, you must do your share to maintain, support, and uphold the rights of the people of this country." End quote. Of course, we do not see what effect it could be expected to have upon persons subject to the draft except to influence them to obstruct the carrying out of it. The defendants do not deny that the jury might find against them on this point. But it is said, suppose that there was the tendency of this circular, it is protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution. Two of the strongest expressions are said to be quoted respectively from well-known public men. It well may be that the prohibition of laws abridging the freedom of speech is not confined to previous restraints, although to prevent them may have been the main purpose. We admit that, in many places and in ordinary times, the defendants in saying all that was said in the circular would have been within their constitutional rights to do so. But the character of every act depends upon the circumstances in which it is done. 
the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a general panic. It does not even protect a man from an injunction against uttering words that may have the same effect or force. Therefore, the question in every such case is whether the words used in such a circumstance and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger and that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree. When a nation is at war, many things that may be said in the time of peace are such a hindrance to its effort that their utterance will not be endured so long as men fight and that no court could regard them as protected by any constitutional right. It seems to be admitted that, if an actual obstruction of the recruiting service were proved, liability for words that produce that effect might be enforced. The Statute of 1917, in Section 4, punishes conspiracies to obstruct as well as actual obstruction. If the act, speaking or circulating a paper, its tendency, and with the intent of which it is done are the same, we perceive no ground for saying that success alone warrants making that act a crime." End quote. So there you have it. In essence, what Justice Holmes is explaining is that if the United States government and its legal system feel that the Constitution doesn't apply given a certain time, most often during emergency times, they can suspend it at will. At this point, it's prescient to bring up the examples of COVID, of the Vietnam War, of the War on Terror, or even what is becoming increasingly apparent in the War on Domestic Extremism. Extremism in this case being in quotation marks. The matter in question seems to be more along the lines of how noisy you are in exercising your free speech rights and subsequently how your noisiness affects the agendas of social, political, and military plans. So now that we know a lot more about Schenck, the pathway to the Supreme Court, the makeup of the court, and the clear and present danger test, let's look at some of the prominent supporters that this case attracted. Among the most highly visible proponents of Schenck's case was Eugene Debs, a prominent labor leader and fellow socialist. And it is worth mentioning that the SCOTUS members would have no doubt been privy to the high-profile defenses of this case and its implications down the line. This coupled with the weak tea opinion offered by Holmes has led some historians to note that this period may have been poisoned by the first Red Scare, or possible political contamination. And what I mean by this is that less than two years earlier, Lenin and the Bolsheviks had revolutionized Russia and despite the naysayers, were looking like a stable and impactful global player. And in the United States, socialist organizations and parties were on the rise. Labor unions were coalescing and there were citywide strikes in Seattle and Boston. And within the background of their imaginations, there was no doubt the looming threat of ideological anarchism and the bombings that they entailed. 
this was no doubt more speech that they felt was directly tied to violence. But regardless, the specter of communism was haunting American elites, and World War I served dual purposes of mobilizing nationalism while being able to crack down on communist dissent at home. Of which, the Espionage Act was the statist's greatest tool and the judicial branch of government their understanding cadre of precedent enactors. But getting back to the supporters of the Schenck case, Eugene Debs, prominent labor leader, agitator, and socialist activist, was a vocal critic of the Espionage Act and the Supreme Court case. Debs wrote of the situation directly to Schenck, in which he proclaimed that, quote, Your prosecution is not only a violation of your personal rights as an American, but a menace to the right of free speech and of the free press, which are the very cornerstones of American liberty. Your case is not an isolated one. It is typical of many others in which the same principles are involved. End quote. And it is important to note here that Debs was actually in a similar boat as Schenck because he was being tried under the Sedition Act around the same time. He also opposed the war and its conscription efforts and was arrested on the same grounds. Again, his case wound up in front of the Supreme Court where yet again Holmes issued an opinion stating that this case was nearly identical to Schenck's and so he must be automatically guilty. And just to quickly remind everyone, having Eugene Debs on your side might not have been the high-profile assistance that one would necessarily want. For in a time of rampant nationalism, being a socialist anti-nationalist was a very dangerous thing. So though Debs' words may have conveyed moral support, they might not necessarily have translated into actual support. Now at this time, I do want to remind you all that the Schenck v. United States case was concluded unanimously. This means that we don't even have the benefit of a dissenting opinion to draw upon for insight as to what a countervailing narrative on the case would have been. To me, this smacks of a conspiratorial effort bent towards a very specific outcome that was preordained before the trial even commenced. This is because an undivided decision like this tells me, in spite of the obviousness of the First Amendment and Schenck's peaceful intentions, that they didn't want the mind virus of free speech infecting the body politic. I think they perceived the looming threat of Marxism to be significantly greater than it actually was, and they were sending a message to all the rabble-rousing chuds that they and their little political games were not going to be tolerated in the slightest. They wanted you to know that they controlled the game and could easily force you into a small metal box if you started to get uppity about their imperial pursuits or your precious rights. It would take decades before another SCOTUS had the cojones to challenge the long-standing precedent of Holmes and his fiery theater trope. One notable example is the case of Yates v. United States of 1957. In the Yates case, the court was forced to consider whether the defendants, who were all members of the Communist Party of America, had advocated the violent overthrow of the government and whether this was in keeping with free speech protections. Again, this will be a future episode so I'm not going to dwell on it much here, 
but yet again we see the radical left being targeted, except this time, their positions were validated. In his majority opinion, Chief Justice Warren criticized the clear and present danger test and argued for a more absolute interpretation of the First Amendment's protections. He wrote that, quote, The First Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees freedom of speech, press, religion, and assembly, was designed to secure the individual's right to express himself freely on matters of public interest. This right was deemed so fundamental that the Constitution's framers elevated it above all other rights and placed it beyond the reach of legislative abridgment. The Smith Act, by criminalizing the advocacy of ideas, sought to interfere with this fundamental right. In doing so, it violated the First Amendment." End quote. But regardless of what was to come in terms of strengthening the First Amendment, many decades after these events, Schenck was thereby convicted to his prison term of six months in a federal penitentiary for violating the Espionage Act. His pamphlets and intentions presented a clear and present danger to the national security of the United States, and thus was incarcerated alongside the likes of murderers, gangsters, thieves, and degenerates. All for simply handing out some pamphlets that were anti-war. And it should be noted here that after only a few short days in lockdown, Schenck dreamed of his wife Lizzie and was noted as repeatedly stating that, quote, I miss my baby and good fun. Schenck bought the law and... <laughs> but seriously, after his release from prison, Schenck remained alive in socialist politics. He also put his free speech bona fides to good use and became the executive secretary of the American Civil Liberties Union Pennsylvania branch in 1923. He also served as a delegate to the 1932 National Convention of the Socialist Party of America. He even went on to become a businessman and inventor, and apparently patented a number of ideas that included some manner of an oil drilling tool and a process for making paper from straw. So that's pretty cool. Schenck died in 1961 at the age of 73. His legacy as a defender of free speech and civil liberties, and as a prominent figure in the labor and socialist movement, continues to be celebrated by many to this very day. Overall, the Schenck case is an important chapter in the First Amendment battles of American history, and this is for a handful of critically important bullet points to remember when objectively analyzing political phenomenon to this very day. Firstly, this case demonstrates very clearly that regardless of what you think you have in terms of rights, they are simply words on a piece of paper. Your codified rights are transitory, you belong to the state, free speech can only be tangentially tolerated in peacetime, and your individualism is hostile to the collective. Within this statist reality, if the circumstances dictate, and there is a perceived or realistic threat to the state, they will shut you down and attempt to ruin your life. The next lesson of the Schenck case is that free speech is the only way to peacefully exercise expression so as to convince others, or at least expose them to countervailing arguments, in a meaningful way. If these efforts fail, the necessity of the Second Amendment becomes abundantly clear. 
So in theory, this necessarily entails that you uphold the free speech liberties for views that you actually hate and despise. In this regard, defending the free speech rights of those you disagree with is actually more important than the ones you agree with. As Noam Chomsky points out, quote, Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels was in favor of free speech for views he liked. So was Stalin. So if you're really in favor of free speech, then you're in favor of freedom of speech for precisely the views you despise. Otherwise, you're not really in favor of free speech. End quote. So stay prescient of the idea that when you're actively calling for anyone to be silenced, you're attempting to install your ideology as the supreme truth of the world, which is highly unlikely to be even partially true. If you hold ideas worth their salt, you'd be willing to subject them to scrutiny and not be worried about being proved incorrect. Banning speech implicitly signals of the weakness and fear you have within yourself. And lastly, when considering Schenck v. United States, it's that we should revere those who bravely stand up against the regime, regardless of their political affiliation. My libertarian views aside, I can appreciate what Schenck and the socialists did and I applaud them for their bravery and dedication to their ideals. For Schenck was one man peacefully handing out pamphlets in order to draw attention to a grave injustice being perpetrated against the American people. That is to say, the mass enslavement of innocent and indifferent persons for the specific goal of violent conflict. Schenck was up against the full might of the state, the legal system, the nascent war machine, and even the propagandized masses hypnotized into believing that nationalism required 133,000 of their countrymen to be slaughtered on the battlefields of Europe. It was bullshit then, and it's still bullshit now. And don't think for a second they won't try it again. Recall the world is actually teetering on the edge of World War III. So please remember, we have to keep free speech open for everyone. Not just your party, your team, your agenda, or your ideology. If we go down the road of censorship, then it's only a matter of time before your speech will be the target. And while you might try and fight the law, you know full well that the law will win. This has been Chapter 2 of the First Amendment Files. Thank you for listening, take care, and we'll see you soon. Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. California has the largest population in the United States and the site of some of the most famous true crime cases in history. But there's more than meets the eye to the crime in California. Join Sean, 
Jessica, and Charles on the California True Crime Podcast as they cover crime both infamous and overlooked from around our state while looking at the deeper history that goes beyond beaches and movie stars. If you like weird, spooky, and strange history, then I have the podcast for you. My name is Brenda, and I'm the host of Horrifying History. Are you into the dark side of history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. We tell the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, the paranormal and unsolved mysteries, and then we look to history to see where the truth actually lies. Want to get spooky with us? Get your horrifying history fix by subscribing today on your favorite podcast provider or by going to our website at horrifyinghistory.podbean.com. In August of 1980, Carol Bundy confessed her connection to the Sunset Strip Slayer who had been terrorizing Los Angelinos all summer. In September of 2012, the cult of the Unification Church, also known as the Moonies, mourned the death of their leader, Sun Myung Moon. Tune into Murder Murder News every Friday to hear us detangle another twisted tale from true crime history. If you're an amateur sleuth who hopes to someday solve a cold case or locate a missing person, tune into Murder Murder News and start off your search with a deep dive into some fascinating and very solvable cases. We always take a victim-first stance and like to focus on crimes affecting marginalized communities, which typically don't get enough media attention. Subscribe to Murder Murder News wherever you get your podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. Murder.